And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Welcome to the Grandland Network. My name is Andy Greenwald. Uh, my guest today on a rainy New York Wednesday Horrible is day. Jack Antonoff, uh, who you may know from his recordings with Fun, with Bleachers, and the first Bleachers album, Strange Desire, I believe is one year old today, or this week. Today. It's a terrific record. Um, he's about to go on tour with Charlie XCX and has a fantastic Google Play docuseries, comedy series, we're going to talk about it, called Thank You, I'm Sorry. Uh, Jack, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. There were a lot of things to list. Yeah, You're it's been a guy. weird year. Um, I also want to point out you are a repeat guest on this podcast. Thank you. Is that rare? It is rare. I feel like you're one of the very first people. Interesting. I f- do you feel like we had unfinished business last time? No, but I like to, um, you know, I, th- th- I like uh, I like to repeat the things that I really like. I, oh, did, I nice. did Seth Meyers five times this year, and the, the last time they were like just making fun of me. <laughs> like, Please and I was stop like, coming. I just really like it here. You know, <laughs> it's just a cool hang. Yeah, I think I think. Um, you know, it's, I guess it's the same thing with my friends. It's like there's certain people that I'd rather shoot myself than hang out with, but then I'd rather hang out with the same people over and over. I watch the same movies over and over. Creature of habit. And I and I notice different things. So we'll have an entirely different conversation, but it'll be one in comfort. That's true. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I should have suspected something when you were here before I was making tea in the, in the <laughs> office kitchen. It was just like, maybe you'd been here for hours. I don't know. But you're comfortable. I walked and I, and I, <laughs> and I screwed up the, the mileage, so I just got here early. I appreciate that. Yeah. It, it was it was actually it was a little humbling because I should have been here early to greet you. Um, it's been a strange year, you said. Um, I want to hear about it because when we spoke last year, I think Strange Desire had been out for a month or two, but since then you've toured it back and forth. You've really annoyed Seth Meyers and his staff with it. You've played these songs to so many people all over the world, and yet you said it was a strange year. Why was it a strange year? It was a great year, but... Um I don't know. Everything seems... St- I guess I use the word strange, which plays into the album title for even things that are good, um, which maybe plays into some part of me where I expect everything to be shitty. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was just, it was just a, a wild year because I think, um, it, you know, it, it, it was a year where I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And and you, you obviously never know what's going to happen, but sometimes you have a, a pretty good idea. And this was a year where I kind of like, uh, you know, it like pulled back the arrow really as hard as I could and then let it go and just didn't know where it was going to land. Was that freeing or was it anxiety-making at times? Both. But I think that, um, I don't know, maybe you're similar. Like, I really thrive on some level of anxiety. It's certainly familiar. Like, yeah. I'm definitely <laughs> weirded out when there's not any. Um, so I think, and that was a big part of doing Bleachers and, and coming from fun into Bleachers was this idea of, like, just constantly scaring the yourself, constantly starting over, constantly making records from, the, from, from a place where people can really relate to them. Yeah, and I didn't like that towards the, um, you know, one thing about sort of the where I I left off with fun going into bleachers was there was something super un, uninteresting about like this this band is massive everything's massive 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 the next record's gonna be massive blah blah because yes. it was kind of like it just it just it became so much more about everything surrounding the art you know right and then bleachers it was nothing. It was literally nothing in terms I mean, of expectation. In terms of it, it, it was it was truly irrelevant. I was yeah. you know the guitar player in in a, in a big band you know which is it's like whatever you know you know it's, it's a, <laughs> yeah, there, there's some examples of that working out for people. Yeah, sometimes but. it works out, but I, but I, you know I I knew how that worked and I knew the way people saw it and and I got so I felt like in love with this idea of like well then this thing is just purely about the art 
in the music because there's nothing else here. No one, there's no one, there's no label telling me this is going to be huge. There's no manager. It's like, this is massive. Yeah. And it was this like incredibly pure process. Were you able to keep it pure during those first few months? I mean, was there ever a sense that we talked about anxiety, but did expectation in your own head creep into it? Or were you able to at every moment appreciate where you were? Because I think that's a, that's a struggle for people on any subject, let alone an album that you sort of poured yourself into in private. A, a, A lot of artistic expectation. Yeah. Like really intense. Um, because I've always seen, you know, any any song I've ever written, you know, I worked on something this morning, and I think it's the best thing I've ever done. And, and that's sort of how I always functioned, where it's like, I'm always, you know, if it's not the best thing I've ever done, then sort of like, what's the point? Which is a really <laughs> way of looking at things, and, and you know, maybe your work isn't supposed to go like this, it's supposed to go like this. Right. I don't know. For people not watching, you meant up and not yes. sideways. <laughs> so, yeah, I gotta, I gotta not do that. That's um, okay. It's a visual medium and an audio medium. Um, but, uh artistically very terrifying commercially it was it was so left that i didn't really think too much about it and, and it was also it was also just like I, I felt like at that point i was sort of living in a bizarre world because i had spent so many years touring and so many years being such an underdog yeah. and such a you know a quote-unquote mainstream failure that to have any mainstream success wasn't a familiar feeling that i was a understanding or b chasing if anything, it made me sort of like huddle back into myself and be like, this is all happening. This is all interesting. This is not bad. Right. And I'm not doing like any sort of like Bon Iver at the Grammys apologizing for it. Like, I think it's wonderful. And whether it's a soccer mom in Milwaukee or, you know, the hippest guy in Orlando or whoever it is, I'm thrilled any person that likes my music is all I'm looking for. That's a rock opera I want you to write, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. The hippest guy in Orlando. <laughs> hippest guy in Orlando. But I happen to know the hippest guy in Orlando. I, I can't <laughs> wait to meet him. He sounds fantastic. His name is Todd. Um, but I feel like... A, a thread running through your career, at least in terms of my perception of it, was you had such a diehard fan base with Steel Train, you know, the band before Fun. Um, and I remember the, the the Steel Train obsessives that I, I know or that I'm, you know, they're on Facebook or Twitter. When Fun started to break, they were like, oh, my God, this is surreal. I can't believe it's finally happening for our guy. <laughs> I get the sense that you felt it was surreal, too. Like, this wasn't the end of the journey that you had set out on necessarily this wasn't no you hadn't been pushing in that specific direction this whole time nothing i've always said this about my career nothing has happened that i i wanted to happen <laughs> and everything has happened that i didn't know could happen right um and that's a wonderful thing yeah i wouldn't change it for anything you know when i set out i, I was you know started in punk bands i thought no effects was the biggest band in the world i was anti-major label that's what i wanted yep then i got signed to drive through records after sort of some of my sounds and values had shifted and, and they had their own like, sounds and values. Yeah, they had their own thing. Time. Yeah, and, and it was like, this is going to be huge. It wasn't. Yeah. It's just been a bizarre ride. And I feel like, you know, what, what, what should have happened in two years of like, you know, ups and downs was like 12 years for me. So I just, I just never knew what, where or what, what it, I never knew where it was going to go. And I still feel that way. And, and I like feeling that way. That, that, that's comforting to me. Like, it's comforting to me, even if a show is sold out, to have this feeling of like, I wonder if anyone's going to come. It it's, what, a, it's a good thing. Yeah. For me. It keeps you on edge. It well, keeps it's, you... it's not like a humble thing. I don't mean it in any way like that, but it keeps you like hungry. Like that, that's what it is. Like for me with art and music, it's like, I have to say very hungry um, and excited. And in moments of my life where, and I'm in a moment of my life right now in other areas where I feel like um, I've been run over by a truck, but just with my work and, and the music and the shows, I feel so hungry to keep pushing. At what point during the Bleachers year did the idea of having someone document it come come up? 
um, the, the footage that would eventually lead to thank you, I'm sorry. When did that thank occur you, I'm to sorry. you? What's that? Thank you, and sorry. Thank you, and sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Is that I, the third I, time I said it wrong? No, but it's not even, it's, it's more me, that was selfish of me just, you know, of, to even correct you because I would just. No, it was good because then <laughs> everyone would be hitting Google Play and be like, it doesn't exist. Thank you, I'm sorry. Or they might find something else that's really great. <laughs> yeah, that's um, my secret project I've been trying to promote this whole time. You're like, yeah, I know, this is my project. That's about, Thank you, I'm that's sorry. That's <laughs> what we're here to talk about, right? Um, I always wanted to do it. I think, I think documentaries about music. If it's a guy with his iPhone, yeah, or like the Kid Dynamite documentary, which is this hardcore brand I used to listen to that was like made of someone's camcorder, all the way up to like Wilco's "I'm Trying to Break Your Heart," I love it. Like, I got enough. You agree? I just love music documentaries. I find ones that have a either a sense of humor or an impossible lack of humor the best. Like I yes. like the extremes. Like you like some kind of monster. Yes. Well, I like... Or you appreciate... I appreciate some kind of monster. <laughs> I didn't yeah. like watching some kind of monster, but I appreciated the fact that it existed in the world. Yeah, I appreciate that th- th- these things exist. I, I had less patience for something like the Radiohead documentary, which... Less self-aware? Um, yeah, in the sense that I understood what they were communicating, and mm-hmm. I understood why they did it at that time, but it's much it would be much more interesting to me to see Tom York like tell a knock-knock joke than it is to see him like cringe under the harsh light of interviews. Sure. Um, that that was a huge thing for me was like I, I wanted to usher in this phase for myself yeah. where I've always struggled with I'm neurotic. Um, I like to try to be humorous. I like to uh, – sorry, I sound like a geezer. <laughs> I like to, <laughs> I like to uh, tell a joke now tell and Tell a joke here and there. You know, I like to uh, talk about the really stressful and dark things. I, I like to be extremely what I perceive as a normal person. Yeah. That's not having a specific persona. And my music has never had a persona. It it just sort of is what comes out of me. But there's this great pressure when you're in a band and when you're an artist to act a certain way. And I really, with Thank You and Sorry, wanted to put in, you know, just to put a nail in that coffin and be like, I'm making these records. They're very serious and I can be very brooding on stage. But you can also see me being incredibly normal. And the last thing I'm trying to do in a world where I won't name anyone because I don't want to sound like a hater, but like everyone's projecting these images. Like I really just want to project myself because I, that's what I've responded to the most in other artists. Well, I think that first of all, it's great. I mean, this is six episodes, 15 minutes each. They're available to watch on Google play. They're really entertaining and you get a balance in them that I think is really rare for professionally made and highly budgeted TV shows in that it is funny there are moments that are not funny where you're talking about very honest things. There are moments of performance, and those moments embrace the the pomp of a performance in the way that they should. Yeah, the tone is tremendous, and I feel like I watch you know I watch TV shows for a living, and I think a lot of them fail to get that. I and I and I'm curious how that was cobbled together. I mean, who 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 I don't even know who directed. Bill them, Ben's who directed it, who's really great, and has done a lot of work on Portlandia and, and things of that nature. Okay. Um, but besides him and the amazing production team above average is the, the snl production team yeah so that that was all very uh proper right yeah but i think what really board. worked out about it is that we had no idea what we were doing you know a lot of what's so great about what what i love about it so much is stuff that we came up with on the road like the plan was basically yeah. like let's you guys are going to come out for a week and a half and we're just going to figure this out yeah. like they like came in shooting and then we would have meetings where it would be like this is working this isn't working what if um you know, what if uh, I had these managers? I remember we came up with that the day before we started shooting, and, and it could speak to, like, 
all these insecurities to me, kind of like a sex in the city where all four girls make up, you know, the average woman or whatever, you know, like <laughs> right. all these managers make up me. And, so you went in, you're like, I want it to be sex in the city. Yeah. Meets uh, rattle and hum mm-hmm. meets <laughs> Louie meets, but um, after they were done slamming the door on you, the final, yeah, they, they reopened it and, and thank God. But, um, it, it was, it was so slapped together. Um, and we weren't, we weren't, we don't, you know, I don't make TV. I don't make yeah. films. So I think that there wasn't this pressure for it to be something specific. It was just supposed to be a visual version of this kind of idea in my head. And and the weird thing is that the the scripted elements ended up being the deepest parts. Because yes. the, the documentary stuff is like, here's the surface. Here's us at the show. Here's us hanging out. Here's us talking about serious things. It's it's all happening. But, you know, the scene with my girlfriend, who's Rosie Perez, the scene with the managers, the scene um, with... Well, there's a scene with Olivia Wilde, who's one of your managers, where you both sort of bond over being slightly OCD, but it gets very over the top yeah. OCD. And like that's really stu- intense stuff that I deal with her. The scene with Rosie Perez where she leaves me because I'm not emotionally present. Like I wanted to have something that really spoke to how touring is really hard and sometimes you feel really selfish and like you're screwing mm-hmm. with the people's lives who love you around you. Well you get to you, you go away. You get to be in a situation and then you get to you have in a, a trap door and you can escape from the situation but the yeah. situation goes on without you. Yeah. Um I appreciated so much the way just focus on the, the OCD scene for a moment. That's a very real thing that people struggle with, and you talked about your own tendencies in that direction. But it's a very funny scene. It is, uh, and it's. I thought it was pretty remarkable your your willingness to just put it out there and make that both. The, it's, it's tough to say. It goes back to the tone thing because it's not like anyone's the butt of the joke here. It, but, no. it, but you're willing to laugh. Yeah. Well, I laugh a lot. I mean, that that's just the culture I come from. I mean. Yeah. The humorous culture. Yeah. I mean, not to sound like, not to be like overly TMI, but I remember like, I remember laughing about a a KFC joke that someone made in the hearse with my family, like driving my sister's funeral. Like I come from a world where it's like laughing and crying all at the same time. I think that... I don't know if it's a Jewish thing. I think it's a Jewish thing. Or a modern... I'm sure other people share it. Yeah. But, you know, when I... When I'm reviewing TV shows that almost exclusively traffic in death and violence these yeah. days, I'm desperate for someone to crack a joke because that all of a sudden makes the emotions real. It puts them into relief. It puts them into perspective. It suggests, totally. it suggests at once the best and worst thing about life, which is that it goes on. Yeah. Right? I, I've never once uh, loved someone or been with someone who I love that was crying that it didn't morph into them laughing after them crying. Yeah. Like, it's my life it couldn't be more the opposite of, like, the way certain French films, you know— portray life like, yes. it's, it's it's very absurd and and i've always wanted to laugh but this is something to bring it to take it into a larger um perspective this is something that i really like about your music particularly the bleachers record too because it is able to straddle art and artifice in the best possible way because you you talked about it already you come from a punk tradition um you come from a or at least you toured as a part of a world that you know that i documented a lot which is the emo music world and that was very much about showing your scars and sharing them in a very intimate way. It was not always the funniest scene no. at the time. Um, but to, to listen to your music as bleachers, to see the way you play shows as bleachers, you know that the archetypes that you're playing with. I mean, you, you're obviously a Springsteen fan. There are elements of that in the stage persona. There's elements of that in the way that the language you use in the songs. But it's also heartfelt. Well, and, and, and I think that the ability to wrap your arms around both those things makes it a lot more human. Well, it's, uh, to me, it's about sincerity so you know like if i'm i'm from new jersey 
So I I related to Springsteen because I understood when he was talking about he talks so much about getting out of this town and yeah. getting out of here and running away and and um, where are you from? From Philly. Philly. So you guys were running to us. Right? Yeah, that's like a real that, city. The big city. So, <laughs> yeah, you got you 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 had a real city on your back, so it's kind of a different thing. But <laughs> that's right. Maybe you felt this way. I, I don't know. Growing up right out, it's you know, I talk about this concept a lot, but right outside New York City, yeah. in, in in you know, in, in the shadow of it, it's you grow up think you want more. You want more, you know. You're, you're you can, the. You can see. You it. can see it. You're literally under it. You're the younger brother. Mm-hmm. You're, every great concert is in New York City. Every mm-hmm. great person is from New York. All your people you admire go in there every day. Yes, yeah, the greatest place in the world. It's you're almost. You'd almost have better self esteem gr- growing up in a field in the Midwest or Orlando. Think about Todd. Yeah, probably better off than right outside. You know, it's, yeah. it's like it would be like, you know, like growing up next to LeBron James your whole life like it's just it's impossible <laughs> you're looking up yeah and it creates you, you hear it in the music New York City music is this who gives a shoe gaze because yeah. you're in the center of cool and New Jersey music which is the Springsteen quality it's also a lot of the punk music I grew up with mm-hmm. I, I I you know related to it so much of like this desperate need to want to run away and, and try to find something bigger mm-hmm. but then also realizing that, that hope is what defines you so you know when I do that on stage and, and when I'm when I'm doing this larger than life thing about like where it feels like a movie, like we, we got to run away, you know, I mean, I'm talking from my experiences of loss and anxiety, but a lot of it is also the, the person I grew up as. Yeah. I can relate to that and I can, I can be like a, a kicker who is self-deprecating and is walking into walls as a human being, but still stand up in front of 10,000 people and want to like have this huge rock show because that is sincere to me mm-hmm. being from New Jersey and feeling like I want to create this movie scenario. How do you, regulate the the reality of the fact that like you you have gotten bigger you've gotten to the city you've played in the city you've played all over the world um often when i talk to people who have achieved goals like that that were dreams of theirs growing up there's that uncomfortable uncomfortable realization that the wanting doesn't really go away you know what i mean like there's always something more to be yearning for and often you know then often it's not people realize it's you know it's not just playing the bigger show it's something internal but i don't know how you've how you've traversed that because you you mm. keep getting these bigger and bigger stages well i've never not felt like myself um i've never not felt like you know 16 17 years old 15 living in new jersey dreaming about things wanting more um i've always felt and i think this is something that a lot of us feel and some of us are really in touch with some of us get in touch with later on you know i feel like i'm pulling a fast one on the world yeah um yeah i mean don't you in some way you know like you probably sit here and you're like you know you think about where you are and what you do and it's 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 very woody allen you know wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member yeah you know as soon as you achieve something you're you know this might be a jewish thing too i remember the first time i always dreamed about being on tv i grew up with late night tv yeah late night if i saw a band on conan Letterman, I was like, boom, they made it. Like, yep. that's the coolest place. What could be better? Yeah, it's the coolest thing in the world. In 2007, I got booked on Conan. It was like the hugest thing ever. And I remember as soon as I found out, I was I was so, I had this like 10 seconds of like my dream come true. Yeah. And then immediately I was like, is Conan falling off? Yeah. <laughs> like, right, like, exactly. Like, exactly. Did, if uh, you made it then, yeah, like, they must have changed. I remember have... being like, what's, you know, like, is Conan a little bigger <laughs> than we all thought? <laughs> you know, so. Wait, really? And, and I think I've had that my whole life with everything. Yeah. And, um. And it's, it's this weird, there's two parts of it. There's this self-hating part where you're like, is Conan falling off? Like, I'm a piece of crap. And then there's the other part where it's like, I'm a piece of crap, but I'm going to sneak in and I'm going to come in for, you know, when you're least expecting it. Yeah. And, and you know, this piece of crap is going to make something of himself. <laughs> this, this little piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. But I've never stopped feeling that way. I've, I've, I've always, 
I, I just uh, I'm very connected to that. I'm very connected to feeling like a little head. But if you come off stage, and you know, we see this in in the what do you do? You call it? Are you calling it a show? Are you calling it a documentary? What I don't you know. You know, it? I never settled on what to call it. Yeah. Um, I think I've said show. It's it's weird because it's it's it is half documentary. Yeah, and it's half scripted. So I don't know. Docu series. Docu series. But, but let's go with that for the. The, the only thing I hate that has been used for it is yeah. mockumentary because it's not. No, not at all. Um, but a lot of people have sort of intellectualized it that way for some reason. Because here's the thing about it. I'm not I'm, mocking anything. I'll, I'll get back <laughs> to the question. That's the thing. There, there are scenes where you are showing us your family home. You're showing us the room. Your 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 sister who passed away. Her bedroom. Yeah. That, there's nothing mocking about that. No. <laughs> but there's also a scene, one of my favorites, when you're being photographed by someone who I imagine is not a real photographer in a way that is very funny. But Which it is mocking the concept of press. and Press, but it's equally sincere. I think that yeah. goes back to what you were saying. Because what it is doing is rather than having the camera showing you being photographed and maybe you're uncomfortable, maybe you're unhappy, and then ultimately who looks like a bad person there but the photographer, you're yeah. showing us the internal effects of something that happens to you in a heightened way. Totally. Which is what good art good tv does so yeah. it's, it's it's equally sincere i think that's a good choice of word that you used before well i wanted it to be this big jumble of <laughs> until the show which is why every episode yeah. has a performance yes right near, there because near it's the like, end this is a whole fucking disaster i can curse right yeah well yeah we'll okay. fix it in public <laughs> like, this is a whole disaster anxiety excitement uh co- opening a coconut with a machete trying to reach your girlfriend like life is so crazy and then boom there's the show, and this is the only part that isn't complicated. And the reason why it's not complicated is because it takes all the complication and it wraps it into a song. Right. And then people relate on it. But I want to ask you about specifically those moments in the concert. When you walk off stage after a Bleacher show, and, and it's gone really well, it's been a big room, you felt it, you felt connected to the crowd, they're cheering. Do you feel like a fraud in those moments, or can you coast home off of those vibes? Um, I feel like a fraud who's who's cut out a weird niche yeah I, I i'm so obsessed with getting ahead of the joke this is something that i talk about my girlfriend a lot getting, yeah. getting ahead of the joke right so it's like i'm so obsessed with this concept of being found out that i love that i just want to put it all out there i want to say it all like what can you say about me you want to make fun of me for having anxiety or yeah. you want to like like what can you say that i haven't said which isn't necessarily a good quality but it's but so when i get off stage i have this feeling of like oh i've 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 succeeded in and gathering this like weird group of people where we all understand each other. Right. So I don't think I've made it. I'm huge. I think like interesting niche. In this room, it made sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause well, I, the live, that's why I'm so in love with touring is because that's the only time I don't feel like that because I feel like I've gathered, you know, we've, we've gathered together with, and we all have a concept in mind, which is the music and we all know what it is. So we're yeah. not And the only places pretending. that you're going to be stopping are places that are, have been arranged ahead of your arrival to be those spaces yeah like you will be like jumping from lily pad to lily pad each lily pad is there's the room and there's your the people who are excited to hear you and it and it's an oddly to... safe environment for how That's... the world perceives live performance and being on a stage which i think a lot of people isn't that like the number one fear like public speaking oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah bigger yeah. than like cancer or something yes so See, i is... actually think for me talking speaking publicly like moderating something or doing something something like this is a thousand times easier and preferable to writing yeah i agree you just do it like yeah. you're, we're doing it right well, now. Because what people miss about it is it's supposed to be kind of f***ed up. Like, <laughs> like, I'm not going out there playing shows being yeah. like, I'm not a classical musician where like every stroke has to be perfect. Like what I'm, I don't, well, I, I hate this word, but what I'm selling, what someone's buying a ticket to, yeah. it's just me. So if, if I start crying on stage because of the content of one of the songs, someone's going to be like, oh, that's a, you know, I, I, I wanted a piece of that. I paid for I that. signed up for it. You mm-hmm. know, I feel with the audience similar to how I feel around my family. 
Like, um, I can't, I can't screw up because I haven't sold a bill of goods that wasn't real. Right. And sometimes you do feel like that in life with friends more so when you're younger or you'll be in a relationship when you're younger and you're like, Oh God, like I've sold a bill of goods. here. That yeah. I can't back this up I can't, at a certain point. I can't, you know, my ass can't cash this check that my face ass has wrote written the, your mouth wrote, wrote the, the check, check your ass can't, can't cash it. yeah so i'm obsessed with my ass being able to cash your checks you're obsessed with your ass well obviously we'll but. edit that also yeah. <laughs> um i'm glad you mentioned that the, the feeling of touring though because that was the thing that intrigued me the most about the oh, here we are again the docuseries um i'm also not saying the name because i'm terrified i'm gonna get it wrong again but if you get it wrong you can call back to it so it's good so that's like a, that's like a yeah, thing. So it's like a thing Thank you and sorry. Yeah. Oh, thank God. It's, it's been it's, it's been called thank crazy. you and sorry because I literally say that all the time. I know, but I was hoping you would say it before I would say it again, so I would be able to. Thank you for getting it right and sorry for correcting you. That's perfect. <laughs> thank it you. Really and sorry. Good for all. <laughs> Do they have a word for that in German? Like, is there a language that already has a word for that? Like apologetic thank you. There should thank you and sorry. That phrase should be condensed. There should be like a word for yeah, it. Yeah, I like, bet it exists in some language. But it, it probably does. Probably some like very polite culture or. Or Yiddish, like some very Jewish culture. Yeah, I'm sure there's a word in Yiddish that <laughs> so, like means so like I'm thankful and I'm sorry, like, oh, and I'm, I'm grateful and, and I apologize. Just like all of it. Yeah, just like pretend I disappear. <laughs> and in fact, it's just silence. That's yeah. how you say it in Yiddish. You, you leave. Yeah, you just jump off a roof. That's it. <laughs> Everyone knows. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but the thing about touring is one thing that, and this came up when we spoke last time. This comes up in the in the show as well. That you are. It came up in this interview already. You are a creature of habit. You talk about how you lived in your. It's not a childhood bedroom because it was your bedroom for a yeah. long time until about two years ago or so. Um, you watch movies again and again. And and yet you love touring. And you talk about with real insight into why you love touring. But I found that so fascinating because I can think of when I am at my most nesty, like just want to burrow in and be escape from the world and be, have, be surrounded by things that are familiar. The thought of leaving all of it, even in a regimented way, is, is deeply unsettling. It's hard to describe until you do it, but it's the most settling thing in the world because it's like you have your there's a bus with a little bunk on it that's yours. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like the comfort of being home, but everything's tinier. <laughs> so it's like at home, like I have my bedroom, my apartment, stuff like that, all my stuff. Yeah. On tour, I have a tiny bunk, and it's like it's filled with the things. It's got a phone charger, it's got earplugs, alcohol wipes, my iPad with movies on. Like it's just pure necessity. I have yeah. antibiotics if I need them. Like everything is just so set i don't know why it's i guess it might sound stressful but it's like it's the ultimate in comfort did you really like hotels growing up did you have a i chance? love hotels okay that's something we have in common then yeah whenever i would have a chance to like go away with my parents or like be in a that was my dream it was incredible because it's the, like the door closed there was food there you have everything you need it was compact yeah like you, you never run into the scenario like if you need soap if you need a toothbrush like totally if, right. if you need food if you're staying at the worst hotel you could call the front desk and order a pizza if you're saying the best hotel will make the food there like yeah it's just sort of like this i think it's like a primal instinct of like i'm not gonna die whereas like when i'm home like i was home in a blizzard once and i was like there's no food <laughs> and like no one would deliver long story yeah. short i ended up finding in like the mail room like a cured meats package that i think actually like jimmy kimmel sent my girlfriend or something bizarre um which is a very interesting way to have survived that night you know, I've always been grateful for Jimmy Kimmel, yeah. but never more so. Well, yeah, there's a, it was like happy holidays. I was like, ah! <laughs> but um, but uh, it uh, it's just on tour. It's just you're it's it's survival mode. It's yeah. like it's like when you leave the difference between you know when you leave your apartment and you have um, 
you know your wallet and your phone or whatever versus like sometimes you leave and you have like a tote bag with like a coconut water and gum yeah. and your earphones for your like and you're just like there's this comfort where it's like i'm okay anything that, like before i came in to do this show I, i'm going to something later and i grabbed uh yeah i grabbed some advil and i grabbed my phone charger and it's like okay well i think i've headed off most catastrophes that, that is exactly what tori is where it's like you're not home, but you know for a fact that there is nothing you left at home. But but isn't there also an element of every your agency is to some degree taken out of it? The uncertainty of what you could do to, to mess up or to potentially you know not find the meat package and die. Like yeah, you know what you're going to do every day to a certain degree. Someone else is thinking about where you have to be at two p.m. Uh, someone else is going to drive you from here to there. The 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 opportunity for error is reduced right yeah but i even what i even had this feeling when i was the one driving the van and when i was even my mentor okay. manager just i just there's something just so regimented and comforting about it and also when you're when you're writing songs or playing shows or making any kind of art or having a, a job where you're where your goal as a human being is to just like blow your mind and think completely outside and yeah. shoot towards the future and the far like that's a stressful concept like I'm working on a record right now. It's like I'm obsessed with I like what's the best idea? Like how the f- do you you figure that out? Yeah, you know that's yeah, that's a big one. It's crazy, and it can make you crazy. That that's why that is that is my whole life, right? That feeling. So that is just, why just wide open. And everything how to get else ha- to counter that has to be so simple. I yeah, I feel like I don't sense. have space to like blow my mind with a million movies. I just want to watch Apocalypse Now over and over and Dark Knight over and over. So cheerful stuff. Or yeah, <laughs> but like, like you family. just like everything else. I, I'm so simple in other ways. I, I eat the same meals over and over. When I'm in the studio, I literally the people who work in the studio they, at the same times they order the same things. You just ask Kimmel to keep sending meat. Yeah, well, just, all I eat is just it, never stops. Jimmy Kimmel meat, meats Jimmy and, Kimmel. and mustards. But um, I need that to counter it, and I've never been able to relate to these people who like are so expanded with ideas and then are also smoking pot and are also out all night. Like I can't live it. Also. Yeah, it has, it has to, and that's part of the Jersey thing. It's a fantasy. It's not my life. So my songs, they're a fantasy. Yeah, and they become my life, but they're a fantasy about, you know, what if I don't get better? What if I, you know, lose my mind and become a schizophrenic? What if the depression takes me over? What if I ran away? What if I like? They're all this crazy fantasy that, and I think that's why it relates to people is because there's different things. Like I look at Diplo's Snapchat as a perfect example. Okay, I'm very excited where this is going to go, <laughs> and um, I'm like. Like this guy is living this this crazy life, you know, that yeah. I, I could totally fantasize about like being like a huge DJ and there's like girls everywhere. It's like he'll like he'll like take Snapchats like yeah. it appears to me right before he's about to have sex with someone. Right. There's like a girl in underwear in his room. It's just like wild, you know? Yeah. And he's living that. And so that's a character where I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't want to be friends with Diplo. I want to be Diplo, right? Like, yeah, you know, like I want to like live in his body in a day and see what like you don't want kinda... to be the other guys quietly in the room. No, like, thank you, sorry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Whereas like Springsteen, as we talked about before, is a perfect example where it's like, yeah, his songs in his life. Like, I don't look at that and think I want to be that. I want to taste that for a day. You know, I just think like, oh, I see myself in that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I relate to that. And I read this great Springsteen quote. Someone posted it the other day. He said it in 1984, which is the year I was born, so it, it meant more to me on some dumb level. But um. He said, you know, you have to see yourself in the audience and they have to see yourself themselves in you. Yeah. And the second that goes away, something's dead. And and that is no affront to Diplo or 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 Tom York or, you know, uh Tom Waits or these characters that are like larger than life and they're characters. They're you characters. Know? Um that's a whole different kind of art, but I've never been able to create that. I think it's also worth noting that and you don't have to agree with this specifically, but I I will say it, it 
from what I gather, Bruce Springsteen is a nice gentleman, you know, and he lives with Patty and they have their kids and he's just, when he's not doing what he's doing, he's a guy. Yeah. And Diplo, Which is so appealing to me. It's very appealing to me too. And Diplo doesn't seem like the nicest guy, to be quite honest. I mean, it, I've never met him. No, I haven't either. <laughs> but it, it, by, maybe it's just playing the character. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But what he puts out into the world constantly is one thing, whether it's supposedly his private life or his public life, it is one performance. Whereas mm-hmm. Springsteen, like, goes to his house. Yeah. Right? I mean, we don't actually know what he has well, for breakfast a... or what Patty looks like on the bed right before they hang out. No. You know? We just imagine that it's... It's gentle. We, we, <laughs> we, we imagine that it's similar to an experience that we're having. Mm-hmm. And, and both things are super important. So, so yes. it's, I'm not knocking one thing. Like, it's sort of like the difference between... Um, well, I, I, mean, I mean, I've made the example already, but it's like it, both things are super important. You, you, you are excited by certain art because it's like you're just like... Like when you see like the hottest girl in high school or something, it's that feeling where it's like, that's not me, but that's the ideal yeah, that, that I want, exists. Yeah, like it's just you know that's one thing, and then there's the other thing where it's like it gives you the sense of comfort or a sense of recognition that's not always comforting. Yeah, but in in the recognition there is some. Yeah, I guess when I say comfort, I don't mean comfort. I mean um, uh, exactly what you said, recognition. You you recognize yourself in it, and I, I get comforted even by terrifying things. Like if someone on the street was like. I'm having a panic attack. I can't feel my yeah. hands. That would bring me comfort because it would make me feel less alone in the world. So I mean comfort in a, in a darker way. Yeah, a connection maybe. And the for word. the record, I did see Diplo on an airplane once and he was with his kid and it seemed like he was a really oh. good father. But I just don't know. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. See, I, but I understand why for the people who are tripping in Ibiza, they don't want to know that. Fair enough. I want to know that. Yeah. I got a kid. I want to know other people are nice <laughs> to their kids. You know, that matters to me. Um yeah, that's well. There's a moment in in, but in that my, became unsexy. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, which is something that I've struggled with my whole career. Like, every, my whole coming up, you know, starting in the early 2000s mm-hmm. when I was playing shows, it was all about the Strokes and it was all about that scene and this like sort of cool vibe. And I just never, I tried to get in there, but I, I never it wasn't yeah. me. Like I just, although it was really funny. The last I person tired. I talked to in, <laughs> at this table was Albert Hammond Jr. the other day. And who's a great guy. Who's a great and guy. And one of the guys in Bleachers plays in his band, and I hear endless stories about what a doll Albert I was, is. I never met him, but I'd, like, seen the remnant of his aura in New York, you know, yeah. like when the strokes were, like, slicing through this place like a machete through a coconut. I was so and, present for that, like, literally having cabs stolen from you by strokes. Yeah, or, like, oh, they the, see the people run across Avenue A because the strokes were rumored to be over there, but it was, and it was just Ryan Adams. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> who I like a lot. But, I love Ryan Adams. But, uh, yeah, I ran in the other direction. But... He was just such a nice guy. And he's like, well, we, we really just like guided by voices. He's like, that's really who we wanted to be. And yeah. now he likes going scuba diving with his wife sober. And I'm like, that is more interesting to me now. And that's why I like his record a lot. It's interesting. But maybe that says more about where I am with music because I also value the swagger and the whatever of 21-year-olds who think they own the world. Yeah. It, look, it, both are really important. It just It just – Sometimes you grow into something. Sometimes you've always been something. Yeah. For me, I've always been this way. So it's just been a. Uh, I feel like I'm just try- constantly trying to come back to myself, and constantly yeah. spinning out of control, and constantly trying to get back to myself. Since you have been touring for a lot of years, and uh, you, you've you've been in these cities, you've been in these these venues, you've been in front of fans. In this last year of touring as Bleachers, how would you characterize? The fan, your fans, the rock music, rock music fans, whoever the, the kids are coming to your show, how are they? What did you learn about them in 2014 to 2015 that was maybe different than what you thought about them in 2002, 2003, 2007, 2008, whatever it may be? Who, who are the fans who are coming to shows these days? 
It's a weird question. I know. It just sort of came to me. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I was I was fishing for that, <laughs> but uh, it's a great question because I think we live in a time when everyone's trying to figure out who's what, um, who's and, listening to the stuff, who's yeah. buying it, who cares, how to connect to them. And I just don't think we live in that world anymore. Um, and I I lived in that world. I'm 31, so I remember when th- those were the Limp Biscuit fans. It's kind of like um, mm-hmm. in in every high school movie that's ever been made, where at some point someone walks down the hall and is like, you know. Andy, I'll show you around. Like you know, those are the geeks. Like yeah. those are the drama nerds. Those are yeah. the biscuit fans. Like those are the guys. And they look up from their locker. Yeah, and they're, they're, you know, it's like, and those don't even talk to them. And yeah. it's like that's and the record skips. And... Yeah, <laughs> but um, I don't know if we live in that world anymore. Which I think uh, Twenty One Jump Street touched on, which I thought was really funny when it's, they go back to high school. Yeah, and it's all fine, and they're all pals. Yeah, that was very <laughs> punches the guy, and he's like, "You punch me because I'm gay." He's like, "No, I punched you, and you were gay." <laughs> like, yeah, um, it's just, uh, but I see it uh, as as a musician, you know, where. When I was growing up, it was a punk scene, and we, we were super clicky. You know, yep. it, there was five kids in my school who were in the scene. We didn't want anything to do with anyone else. Yep. We didn't want anyone else to join our club. Like, it was uh, – we were the popular girls in the alter universe. Um, and then it was drive through record scene, which was super sceny. Um, yeah. And then in the midst of that, I was also sort of stroke scene going on in New York, which was – a thing and you could see by the way someone dressed and now it's just like i could look at you and be like well this guy looks like he might like ryan adams but he also might like the new drake record you know he does at your this guy does yeah your age and what I, the vibe i'm getting from you you probably have a deep appreciation for kanye and some equally complicated feelings about him i'd also imagine that your like love. you also understand how great crosby sells and nash are and probably love Joni mitchell's blue like i feel really known by you at this moment <laughs> this is very sweet and then you know to even further complicate the time like maybe you uh also really have a, a an intense feeling about modern pop music and see a lot of the value in it and probably think that robin's body talk was one of the most brilliant albums of the past 10 years like i do wait this is yeah. this is uncanny <laughs> Am I that and much like of a, yeah. i'm sure that you know 20 years ago you would have thought max martin was the backstreet boys dude but now you see that there's a, a layer of genius there that is growing and hey, growing and growing for what it's worth 10 years ago i thought he was the biggest genius in the world so and then, that's never yeah. changed <laughs> but you know we, we live in a world where um carly ray jepson got best new music on pitchfork right and, and, that, and that rostam worked on her record rostam worked on her, and, on her record and you know i was a guy in, in a drive through band and, and now i do everything from you know i'll i'll, I'll you know make records with grimes and, and taylor swift record, and, and and pop and and I go all over all over the place and so i look at the crowd sorry to yeah. go so off it and, no, it and i just see i see a lot of myself which is just like there's just i never felt like i was in a scene i never felt good enough to be in a scene and then at some point as i got older i kind of had this attitude about it but i just i think the whole world has grown into that where it's like the one good thing you could say about the mass the atom bomb of information and songs and everything that mm-hmm. hits you is that maybe there isn't enough time or care to 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 push things aside because to, you're going to hear something to you might build like up the walls. Yeah. You know, like how many times do you hear someone be like, I heard Lana Del Rey song and I actually liked it. Yeah. It's like that didn't happen 10 years ago because you didn't just hear it. You had to go out and buy it and, and think and, about and, and it. By, and by doing so, pledge into that fraternity. Yeah. You didn't you just to, hear something. No, you had to identify it. It was much more about putting down physical money, physically aligning yourself with something, being seen with something yeah. in your car, on your wall. My obsession with the Makai cost me a thousand dollars yeah i bought all of his records yep. i bought t-shirts and i you know tickets to see bands that were on discord like it, it, it had tentacles that went all over oh, yeah. the place yeah if you used like s- s- the word skyscraping in a review of an enemy single <laughs> review in 1998 i would have spent 20 dollars on the single yeah no matter and, what and it was, i would have bought it an immense darkness that we don't live in that time but i'm also becoming really obsessed with 
looking at what's good about this time. And I think yeah. what's good is that just like, I mean, God, look at festival billing. Festival billing is hilarious now. At Fader Fort, we played after, we played before Mike Will and Miley Cyrus. Yeah. And we played after Skepta. Yep. Like, what a great world. Yeah. That, that we live in. Like, that's awesome. That's great. Like, I would rather listen to, I mean, that's what I would make a mixtape out of. Like, I would yeah. make those transitions. And it's nice that that's now the. I think we, as music fans and people who absorb, absorb alt and art and culture, are more allowed to have this like i listen to this listen to this because yes. th- that's finally what it is you know in 2000 i was listening to billy joel and then you know green day and then smashing pumpkins and then uh snoop dogg like it was it was flying all over the place but i didn't talk about it right i identified as someone who liked no effects you had to you had you literally put it on your wall yeah because when people came to your room they had to know who you were where you stood i didn't have like billy joel art all over my wall i had right like what would that art be like the cover of river of dreams blown up just, that would yeah, be just a like, weirdo like, just like a border of river of dreams. <laughs> just that weird painting of his face um i have to ask you this it, this is connected to what we were talking about um no, you can ask me anything what i saw you oh good okay let's go to the real stuff then <laughs> in the time we have left no last last whenever it was last fall uh, end of last summer when we spoke uh you said that you had been writing with taylor you said that something big was coming it was going to be great <laughs> i think i think shake it off was out and that was about it uh, you you played your cards very close to your chest and did not say that 1989 is like one of the best put together, <laughs> most amazing pop albums. Well, you don't, you don't, you don't with her. I mean, with any, I have such respect for everyone's art when I collaborate with, with them. But with her, I mean, that's like I've I've played shows at the White House. Yeah. And that felt um, less secretive, less secretive. <laughs> yeah. And I get it. You know, she's got the whole world looking in and paying attention and, yeah. and jumping when she says jump in the best ways. So. I didn't know about Out of the Woods, for example, then. That was one of the songs I think you were obviously you were referring to. Can you talk me now with more specificity now that it's public, uh, very much so, the genesis of not just that song, but working with her on that song? Did it begin with an idea you had, or does it, do these collaborations begin with the two of you sitting down? And I think you told me that she had, like, helicoptered to Brooklyn Heights or whatever <laughs> she does to get there. Do you sit on the couch and just talk about sounds, or do you say, well, here's my idea, and this is a, would take you down a different direction, or this is the path i have laid out for you well during that the time period that we were working there so we did we, we taylor and i have recorded i think four songs yes in total um in three two, of the two. fiction you are in love i wish you would and out of the woods i wish you would was the first one okay um and i've told the story a lot about how it came out we were how it came about we were hanging out i showed her this track but the, the point is so i was working the bleachers album and she was beginning 1989 we were so aesthetically just like on the exact same page of sounds mm-hmm. ideas this we talked about John Hughes so much. We talked about the sounds of that time. We talked about how the best records then were the biggest records. There wasn't this, mm-hmm. just a lot of stuff that we've been talking about. It, we were so aesthetically locked in that there wasn't a lot of like, what do you think of this sound? Or what do you think of that? It was, and we also, we didn't work together because like I was the hot producer and she was the hot artist. Like yeah. if anything, that's some of the early, you know, that's early on in my production career. You know, a lot of, I've only been doing that for like two years. And which is an interesting thing about Taylor is as one of the biggest artists in the world, it's funny that she was just like, yeah, you're producing this. Yeah. And I was like, great. <laughs> um, and then the rest of our team was like, oh, okay, he's yeah. producing it. We better make a note of that. But um, but we were so locked in that once once I showed her that track for I Wish You Would, I think that there was this immediate connection where it was where I knew that she was fully understanding this stuff. She knew that I was understanding it. Um, and so then it just went off from there. And, and Out of the Woods specifically, so I, I made that track um, and pretty much kind of as it is that that track was there and i was just like god this feels like 
end of the prom in John Hughes' movie. This like embodies these things I've been talking about with Taylor. And I had that feeling, which I have with everything I do, where I was like, this is or isn't a Bleacher song. I just know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, even though it was very aesthetically linked to Bleacher's. And I sent it to her. Um, I remember I was in Turks and Caicos because I, I had taken the first vacation um, that I'd ever taken in my adult <laughs> life, even still to date. And I, and I sent her that song. And I remember being in bed, and she sent back very shortly after a voice note. And her voice notes are brilliant because she explains... You know, she's not like she's not like a quiet genius. Like she, she, you, you hear the steps. She's like, "Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what happens here. Right now, I'm going to sing the verse, and this is going to be the verse." Then she plays it. She's like, "Looking at it now." Did she have the words, or yeah, did she have like, just the placeholder done. words? Like it all seems so. Like, maybe a few words missing. Like, yeah, you're lying on your couch. Like this is this is how specific she is. Like the echo. She was like, "I remember, I remember, I remember." Like she was like doing the echo. So the things that. When I listen to it, I'm like, oh, they're very smart to add that weeks no, later. No. That's there. It's yeah. part of the way that... And that's why the sound... That's why it works. That's that extra she, sauce that it makes was, it... It was all there. Like, like every tiny bit of that track, I had, like, worked out to a T. And every tiny vocal yeah. lyric, she had worked out to a T. And then she was like, okay. And then the chorus would be like, aria. And then she sings the chorus. And then 20 minutes later, this is how it always works there. I get another, another email. It's a voice note. She's like, I just got the best idea for a bridge. And she was like, imagine this, imagine this, blah, blah, blah. And this is happening with the vocal tone. What time of day is this? I don't remember. It was probably night. Okay. But that that was an amazing experience because... But it's not like four in the morning. No, but it could have been. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, you know, I, th- I think it kind of comes to her when it comes to her. But I, I've listened back a lot to those voice notes, and that's how we did You Were In Love, and that's pretty much how we did I Wish You Would. And um, and it's it's not like, that's basically what ended up on the record. It's like, that's the record. That's it's amazing. Just, we just recorded it better. Yeah. Um, And it's it's incredible. And And what's cool about it, too, is like, it's so unassuming. I've been I'm in the studio all the time with artists, and it's like big vibes, and there's other people there, and everyone's like, "This is a smash," and it's like, you know. <laughs> but um, with her, it's like it existed in such a tiny space, like literally, like email, like you know, like I made that track, my headphones on, yeah, literally on my laptop. I had the idea for these like boomy drum things. I knew the chords I wanted to use. I wanted it to be an ARP. I didn't even use the my Juno because I had. I had already like pulled the sounds out, so I did almost all of it on MPC. I sampled my voice, going oh, mm-hmm. like all that stuff. It was just cutting it all up. Like literally existed in a space that was like two square feet. Yeah, just like my face to the computer to the MPC. Yeah, over email, which is this big. Her into her iPhone, back, and like that was it. And I just saw the show in North Carolina, the tour, and it was mind blowing to see it go from that to that. Yeah, that it could travel that that distance and yeah. still be maintain its integ- structural integrity. Like it it's doesn't get blown to bits. Right? Crazy, it, it's strong enough. He, I, I know you're not. I know you don't think it's strange that that I'm so curious about both her and that process. Mainly because I think she's an incredible artist, and yet for as much as you know, I think she's mostly blown this out of the way, out of the water. The, the you know the, the skepticism about her own artistic ability. Yeah. But like when I spoke to Tegan and Sarah, who I know are friends of yours as well. Um, they, we talked about this after we were done recording and about how when they came up on and they did um, they, they sang with her at yeah. Staples Center how backstage she gave them Taylor came to greet them and gave them like a jar of homemade preserves that she had made Yeah, and I feel like that was such an amazing detail <laughs> and I feel like the thing that people find the hardest to believe about her now is that she is just kind of a nice person well, and, and, that's and why everything that you've said in both of our conversations suggests that in the midst of all of this power, all of this money, all of the celebrity, she kind of is, which is the more, almost more mind blowing to me than the sales figures of 1989. But that makes sense because it's like, if you want it all, right? Yeah. If you're someone who wants Obviously it all, I do. Yeah, and I think we all want it all. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, even if we're acting like we don't want it all. 
But if you if you really want it all, what's the ultimate thing you can have that's bigger than money and power and preserves? It preserves, yes. But beyond so preserves, preserves, preserves is like the Beatles. It exists in different places. Okay. But you know, be, beyond that is to be liked and to have f- yeah. real friends and to have comfort on the other human being. Because look, any of us could just die tomorrow. So it's like you can't beat that. So so you know when you're dead, you obviously can't take the money and you can't take the power. So. If you're if you're super ambitious and and I think to myself occasionally as ambitious, it's like when I think about wanting it all, I think about all my career um, ideas of what I want to do, what I want to create. But then above all that, it's like I want to be a human being that goes to bed at night and feels good. Mm-hmm. And um, I, so so with that in mind, it makes sense to me that if you're so ambitious and you have it all, the the, the most important thing is still to just like feel decent. I think that makes total sense. I don't know if I would have reached that if I had been a global superstar at 19. Yeah, that that makes it even more impressive because obviously we see what happens to a lot of people who have that early. Yes, I mean it's. But one, then it all, it all it goes back to obvious stuff. It's like her parents are great. Yeah, you know, like I just think when 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 you meet someone who's a piece of, shit, there's a, you, it's very rare that you can't figure it out. Very true. Within five minutes, usually it's like, oh, that happened to you. Of course, like yeah, you know, like your dad was the worst guy ever. Like. Yeah. You, you came by it honestly. Yeah, like, sure. You know, go mm-hmm. ahead, continuing to be a piece of mm-hmm. shit. Um, to me, at least, not to oversimplify, but a lot of times with people, it's like, you know, hurt people hurt. Sounds cheesy, but it's true. Like, you meet someone who's an asshole, and it's just after five minutes, once you once you get over feeling bad that they made you feel bad, you're just like, want to, like, hug them and, and be like, oh, you, you sweet, sad thing. You know, you have to make other people feel bad. It's so terrible. Yeah. Last Taylor question. To communicate with her, do you have to use, like, the dark internet? Is there, like, a, a level of encryption that we don't know about? No, she's incredibly... I guess that serves as a bigger point for her. She's incredibly good at remaining normal. There isn't, there isn't like, some, some code breaker? Like, you don't have a cipher where you have to translate no, everything? No, she, she, she exists in my life in no... Uh, not, not too different than any friend exists. It's just, just little, little differences. You go to dinner, there's security, but they're kind of right. out of the way. She's done, a, you know, she's done a really good job at being a normal friend. True or false? She was the one who asked for the Delta miles in the kitchen right before we started recording. True, I give her a lot, <laughs> a lot of frequent flyer <laughs> yeah. miles. Yeah, she probably needs it. Yeah. Um, you alluded to working on something at the moment, so I have to ask about it. Uh, are you? When you said you were working on something and you want it to be the best thing you've ever done, do you know what it is? Is it a Bleachers record, or is it you're just starting to put together songs for whatever it might be? Well, I'm working on a few things. I, I am working on the new Bleachers album, um, and I'm in this really exciting. Uh, around phase, mm-hmm. which is cool because it's like I always talk about like parameters of an album, and now I'm deciding what those are. Yeah, like so what, what the sounds are going to be. What, what what I don't want to ruin your creative process, but are there adjectives or benchmarks you would use to describe it at an early date? Um, I'm I'm obsessed with this concept of New York City and New Jersey, and being someone who's kind of looking in and sort of idolizing this bigness, but being a small figure themselves. And having traversed the divide, or are you still in the mindset? No, nah, living here doesn't mean much to me. You know, I, I am what I am. You know, like, at, at, at this age, you know, I, I I live here, I sleep here, but, like, I'm from where I'm from, and yep. I lived there for, you know, I didn't move when I was nine, I moved when I was 28, so... <laughs> it's true. It, it is what it is. Um, but, uh, but almost on a specific level, like, a lot of those sounds of the 80s and 90s of New York City that I kind of grew up hearing... Like yeah. I heard these sounds and I was raised on them. Then I had my own interpretation of them being from New Jersey, which is sort of just like this like constant, like hopeful, epic twist on these sounds. Yes. So it's, it's very literal. Like, you know, you know, this like kind of like crashy New York, late 80s snare drum. Like, I like that. But, you know, I want it to be bigger. 
<laughs> to be even you know more larger than life, kind of like the way it might sound getting it all the way in New Jersey. Yeah, you have like, to hear it has to travel over the Hudson River, so it has yeah. to be louder. I, I, I feel a lot of literal feelings about a lot of those sounds. When you mentioned like that era of New York, I'm also thinking about how like as a kid in the suburbs in New York, I would see like a delight video, completely devoid of context. But then like un- when Kurt Loder would report on this new band or whatever you know collective, whatever they were, he would refer, he would use these words to describe like downtown scene or yeah. club scene. I don't know what any of these things are, but they seem like they're having a great time. Totally. I'm obsessed with that vibe of, like, that's a big part of it, too, like, downtown early 90s New York scene and what it meant and what it sounded like. And I just want to I want to play further into this idea yeah. of, like, I did grow up on the outside of all that. Yeah. And that's a perspective. And obviously, lyrically, I you know, I, I the, the stuff I talk about doesn't ever stop moving, so that doesn't really go away. Yeah. There's a lot of really dark elements that I... I want to put in there and, and find a hopeful twist on them but it's 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 interesting to to be back at work what else are you working on other projects as well are you are there yeah. other things you can talk about in terms of working it's with other weird. artists or i think a lot of the stuff i think it's i'm working with tanache and see i think that's already been out there i didn't know that that's awesome um, she's great tanache's i love her i've been working on this project that will come out in two weeks which i can't say too much about but it's related to the last bleachers album and it's going to be kind of the final stamp on on that time period mm-hmm. um what else am i working on yeah it's hard to talk about all of it because you never know but the stuff that i'm just working on personally i can kind of talk about all of it and or some of it but <laughs> a little bit of it yeah um is it safe to say that fun remains on hiatus is that i know that's the, the popular question to ask and i felt like i had to. it's weird how unpopular that question is really yeah it's kind of odd i feel like i got that question a lot um when well because nature well, record just came out and you're launching this tour so i think everybody kind of knows yeah um. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, that, that was like when I first started Bleachers, everyone was like obsessed with that question. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of just kind of. Well, because Bleachers became a thing. Yeah. It's not a side project; it's a thing. Totally. That you do. Yeah. I don't know. I. I. I you know. I. I say this a lot, and it's really just true. Like, I don't think too far in advance. Yeah. Um. I do in my life. Like, you know, I. I. I if I was gonna like try to go somewhere with my family or make a dinner plan to see someone. But artistically, I don't because I've changed so much so quickly um, at different points that it doesn't really do me. And when I say me, I mean the fans too because I kind of see the same thing. It's like I think what's good for the fans is probably also good for me. Like it doesn't do any of us justice for me to be like, now I'm going to make a fun record, I'm going to make a bleachers record, and I'm going to do work with other artists. Like like, it's just I can't can't do it, A, because I just – don't know where what, how I'll feel. Yeah, and B, I don't want to do it because the only reason why things matter is the only reason why this Bleachers album has mattered to people and why the stuff I worked on has mattered to people. What the Taylor stuff or, or the last phone record, why it matters is because when I was doing it, it's all that mattered to me. It had your full attention. It had your full. It's all that mattered creativity. to me. Yeah, so it's it's hard to give time frames or know what's what. I I don't know. It's uh, it's just it's just a funny um. Thing, thing to think about when you have a lot of things you could be doing, yeah. which is actually kind of exciting to me because then it, then it makes me feel like, well, you know what? At very least, everyone knows that this is exactly where I want to be because there was six ways it could have gone. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I had one choice. It wasn't like yeah. all I can do is is bowl and I have a bowling tournament coming out. <laughs> you might as well bowl. I have to do this. But like, you uh-huh. know, it could have been – I could go work on a fun record. I could work on a bleachers record. I go write with other people. It's like – so I, I, I like I like the idea of people knowing that – you know, I, this is what I have to do. When we talk about, um, you know, sort of curating the 
I don't know how you would describe it, but the inspiration for a new project. And you're talking about like that, that late 80s, early 90s vibe. Um, I can imagine it would be very easy to then, you know, you, maybe like Carrie Matheson on Homeland, you make your tech board of the various sounds and images and you carry those as your benchmark going forward. Um, I do that. Do you, that makes sense to me. But I do, do it on my phone. But do you, do you still get sidetracked or blown off course by, for example, if there's something on the radio or a new song? So that's a long way of saying, is there something that you've heard, this is putting you on the spot terribly, but is no. there something you've heard in the last month or last week or last day that you were like, oh, that's amazing. And that's amazing in a way that was exciting and expansive to your own creative process. The Kendrick album is the last thing I heard that was like that. And tell me why. Um, not in specific ways. Um, well, in some specific ways. Uh, how how it played, how the album plays like this weird experience and things loop into each other and things come back. I've yeah. always been a fan of that. There's a lot of that on Strange Desire, like vocal samples mm-hmm. that come back. And hearing his album do that, I felt super connected to it, super connected to how dark a lot of the sounds were. Mm-hmm. And that it was it was sort of the opposite of the way records has to sound right now, which is like super hi-fi and compressed. Yeah. Um, so that gave me a lot of ideas. It's never ideas like, oh, I want to do that. It's, it's ideas like, oh, well, then what if like I took some of those really dark sounds, which I did the other day, and then mixed it with like this like super hi-fi, kind of yeah. like Max Martin sounding things. Like maybe that's a formula for something fully new. Um, I like how he's, how honest he, he is. It makes me not want to yell politically the way that he so eloquently does, but more yell more honestly about mm-hmm. the stuff I've gone through. You know, things that that was the last thing where I was just like, this is so pure. To me, it was also fascinating because it was like a, a black hole into an alternate universe. Yeah. Because we live in a world still, and maybe even more so now because of the way the industry is, where singles are everything. You know, singles are, are the gateway to whatever album you're going to buy. They're an introduction. You know, yeah. I mean, we talk about the sound that was 1989. Well, the, the singles were very intentionally released in an order to give us a vibe of what we were stepping into. Kendrick seems to have created a world where he can be a successful pop artist by appearing on other people's songs, but there's no traditional single no. on Pimp a Butterfly. There's, in fact, no there's no gateway to well, it. Well, there's literally, not only is there no artistic single, there wasn't a no, big he didn't, single. No, it just appeared. King Kunta, I think, should have been a hit, but it wasn't. No, and now All Right is, I think people are coming around to it, like a lot of great records. Yeah, but, but it's still not on the level, it's still niche. Yeah, it is, and and to, and it's an amazing. Maybe it's a way forward for people to have a music career in this era. But it's pretty amazing that he has a public thing that he does, and then it's almost as if his album, which for three decades was the most public thing that you did, that's yeah. almost like his private sketchbook. It's really interesting, yeah, because we live in a world where everyone on the street knows who Kendrick Lamar is. He's incredibly famous. But if you ask someone who your, what your favorite Kendrick Lamar song is, yeah. they might be like, they'll probably reference a verse he did on something. Yeah, like oh, he's great on problems, or yeah. he's great on bad blood, or. Totally. Um, or he just uh, he just jumped on that um, classic man song that's on Hot ninety seven yeah. every five minutes and that I love and it's not and he's that's what's so great about him is that when he steps on those songs he sounds sincere totally but that's not generally what I think he's in his heart like that's a that's it's like a, it almost feels like an actor taking a part on those those things and he's such a good actor that he performs his heart out and it's sincere mm-hmm. but the difference between like taking a role in a big budget movie or doing a one person show I think is a wonderful thing though because what it promotes is yeah I'm a Kendrick Lamar fan. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm a fan of this song or this album. Like, I think the, the, we can never be in a time more where we need just people to buy into a whole thing. Yeah. Because we're losing a lot of that. So it's like, Taylor does that. You know, everyone sings every word to every song. I just saw Kendrick. Everyone was freaking out for every song. Like, 
But it's interesting, too, because we're entering this era where, as you said, everyone has access to everything, and no one aligns themselves with any one thing. And so some of the best artists, and certainly the most influential artists, are themselves curators of genres of what's good or what's not. They're tastemakers in a much deeper way. It's not just what they wear or what soda they drink. But when Taylor brings someone on stage every night, like that's a certain sign. Yeah. We were talking about Kanye right before we started recording. When he grabs Vic Mensa and jumps on his track, okay, well, that's something to pay attention to. And now we're seeing a very literal version of that with Beats 1, where like, like if, if Drake told me to listen to anything, I would listen to it. If Ezra Koenig told me to listen to anything, I'd listen to it. They're DJs on this station. Yeah. And that's sort of an interesting role. I would, I would imagine that's something you would be quite good at, too, because you can articulate a, an aesthetic and a, and, a, and a point of view that goes beyond your own records. Yeah, but I'm not great at, personally, like I've never been the person who tells friends what to listen to. You don't, make, you don't slip people tapes? And just I like, only listen to my own music, really. Um, not in an ego way, but just in like a working way. Like, yeah. that's what, I get ideas, like, you know, I, I work on stuff at home, then I take it and I listen to it all day. You know, I've got like a bunch of tracks on my phone. I'm just listening to them over and over, waiting for ideas because you never know when they're going to come. Yeah. And I want to get the ideas outside the studio because then it's connected to people walking down the street in the car on the way here, or whatever. Um, so I, I'm I'm in this weird place where I don't I don't discover a lot. Yeah. And then sometimes I don't want to because I don't want to be overly influenced. Yeah, because you have to keep your eye focused. On yeah, like even it. when I heard that Kendrick album, I got really influenced. I, then I like put it away, and I was like, because otherwise it would have led you down. I don't want because it's like cool, like this thing hit it's almost like drugs or something it's like you take a little bit and you're like wow this is terrific and then yeah. you, there's a party where it's like i gotta take a lot more and then you're like no that's actually the wrong <laughs> feeling here yeah. um you know whereas like records like i could listen to i won't name anything but i could listen to certain records over and over and over again because they just don't hit me on that level yeah and sometimes i feel like my music is reserved for that crazy gut level that makes me want to cry and then the music i actually listen to i almost want it to be like a like a, an escape from that like, I, think, I can't listen to Thunder Road. Yeah. Like, I could. Like, obviously, I could. Yeah. I can't listen to Sunset Tree by the Mountain Goats. Like, there's, it, I won't. I'll just cry, and I'll feel too much, and it'll, yeah. like, it'll just, like, destroy me. And sometimes it's good to do that. If I listen to Am I Most Beautiful by R.E.M. or In My Life by the Beatles or, God, if I just put on the White Album, like, I would just get lost, which is probably good for you as a human being, but it would take me out of my work for three days. Well, because, as you said, it's work. I mean, this is not at all the same because I'm not creating on that level, but... When people ask me, like, what TV I watch, since I have to watch TV for work and react to it, I'm like, I watch Chopped. Yeah. You know, like, or I watch House Hunters because it's not, I enjoy it, but it's not as taxing. It's not as demanding. It's not. Yeah. And you're not, and you're you work. different parts of your brain. Totally. Um, I feel like I should let you go because I'm now assuming we're having so much fun that you can come back four more times <laughs> and we can beat the Seth Meyers record. Um, you're going on tour. We'll put this up quickly so people can be aware of these things because you're going on tour with Charlie XCX. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Soon. She's terrific she's great it's gonna be a really interesting tour because we're really so different has she have you collaborated with her at all i feel like that we have um we've done a few things together and and i'm sure we'll we've been talking about writing on tour and seeing if we find space for that she's really interesting to me because she's chameleonic in the best way like she sounds terrific on very 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 wide variety of tracks yeah and her album is like like oddly like dark and punk and weird like she's very grimy yeah of a lot of different things so that tour will run through the end of the summer? How long a tour is Yeah, it, it ends in October. That's a, that's a minute. Yeah, but we go to like Japan and Europe in between, so it's kind of cut up. Okay. It's sort of like the last... I see this summer starting tomorrow, actually, because that's the first show. Actually, we're opening for Billy Joel at Fenway tomorrow. That's not the first show. That's, that's a, pretty that's, amazing. Yeah, that's the first... You've got to tell them about your River of Dreams poster. I, I will. I'll be like, Christy Wrinkley's painting. <laughs> she made of you, a River of Dreams. It touched me. Yeah. 
makes other art look like a joke. <laughs> and then that should be all you say. Yeah, bye. Um, and then the tour starts shortly after that, but that's when we leave. Um, but to me, it's the uh, it's the end of the Strange Desire cycle, sort of like a celebration of that, and then like opening the door to the next one. Because we're going to play a new song that I've been working on and start to awesome. hint at some of that stuff. And I want things to bleed into each other. So there's a secret thing coming in two weeks, too. Yeah. There's uh, Thank You and Sorry. It's on Google Play. Yeah. And people should definitely watch that. And uh, Jack, it's always great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for coming by. Good to be here. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.